Let's take our Bibles and turn to to Exodus chapter number 6. Exodus chapter number 6 in your Bible this evening. I was asked this morning uh, after the service by one of our guests that uh, has uh, been visiting with his, his wife here at CBC. Um, the gentleman does not come from a Christian background, and he asked me, what, why uh, in America do we honor Father's Day? Why do we have Father's Day to honor fathers? Is that something that comes from the Bible? Does the Bible tell us to do that? And I said, uh, no, I said, uh, it's not something that comes directly from the Bible. I said, here in America, we've just got a lot of holidays. This person was not uh, from America originally. He said, that we, you know, we've got a lot of holidays and for different purposes and reasons. And they each have a history. Uh, I said, uh, mothers, I didn't tell him, but this afternoon I looked up uh, just to, you know, I wanted to know the answer to the question so that if I'm ever asked again, I can answer the question. I, I'd read about the history of Mother's Day. Mother's Day history is better known than the history of Father's Day, but Mother's Day history, the history of Mother's Day goes all the way back to the 1860s in the post-Civil War era when Anne Reeves Jarvis in a, uh, a city in West Virginia that was very much divided between the North and the South, and she had um, a burden to get the mothers from every aspect of the city together for a special time for the mothers from the Confederate and Union soldiers, and, and they did that back in the, uh, the 1860s. Uh, it didn't become a commercial holiday until 1908 when her daughter, uh, Ann Jarvis, wanted to honor her mother. And so she was able to get John Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia to sponsor a service for mothers in their auditorium. And that was in 1908, and the retailers immediately recognized a great potential for profit. And so the next year, in in 1909, uh, 45 states observed Mother's Day. You know, you get the the old uh, capitalism cranking and the opportunity for profit, and things happen quickly. By 1914, President Woodrow Wilson approved a resolution that made the second Sunday in May, a holiday in honor of, quote, that tender, gentle army, the Mothers of America. Now, the campaign to, to honor fathers did not meet with the same enthusiasm as the campaign to honor mothers. And as one florist explained, fathers haven't the same sentimental appeal that mothers have. There wasn't as much money to be made. Uh, honoring fathers as in honoring mothers. Well, on July 5th, 1908, a West Virginia church sponsored the nation's first event explicitly to honor fathers. It was a Sunday sermon in memory of 362 men who had died in the previous December's explosions at the Fairmont Coal Company mines in West Virginia. It was a one-time commemoration, certainly not a national holiday. But the next year, things started to, uh, uh, to multiply, and uh, out in Washington State, the first official Father's Day event occurred on June 19th, actually in 1910. And by 1916, President Wilson had honored 
the, the day for fathers. And by 1924, President Calvin Coolidge urged state governments to observe Father's Day. And so finally, the third Sunday of June was uh, targeted as a day to honor fathers. So that's the history behind Father's Day. Not quite as illustrious as Mother's Day and uh, doesn't get quite the notoriety of mothers, but that's that's good. I think there's no higher position on earth than the one who bears and shapes the next generation. And so certainly honoring mothers on Mother's Day takes the uh, takes the upper seat. But that doesn't mean Father's Day is not important. And uh, Father's Day and Mother's Day have grown in America to provide a natural opportunity to examine the role of fatherhood and the role of motherhood and in, in the Bible and to deal with parenting in general. And so oftentimes on Mother's Day and Father's Day, we give attention to things the Bible teach about fatherhood and motherhood. And this evening, I want us to take a few moments uh, at the end of this day to recognize something from the Old Testament about God as he became a great role model for fathers everywhere. And it all revolves around a particular name. And it's the name that is in our prayer sheets this week that I've invited you to spend time meditating on the name of God, El Shaddai. And to meditate on that name what the Bible says about that name, what the name means. You know, the best way to get to know God is to meditate on His various relationships to us, His various attributes, and His various names. And I have a passion to encourage the members of Community Baptist Church to get to know God. And you'll never know God if you don't understand His attributes and his names by which he revealed himself in the word of God to us to get to know him better. And so it just happens that this week, uh, the name El Shaddai came up on the natural rotation. I checked with Jermaine to make sure that uh, I was reading the list right. And sure enough, the name that I wanted to speak on tonight was in the natural rotation of names on our prayer sheets uh, to think about God and uh, and the role model that he portrays. I ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 6 because I wanted you to see that this name is a primary name. God in Exodus 6 is speaking to Moses. He's in the middle of Moses dealing with Pharaoh. And if you look at verse number 2, the Bible says, God spake to Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. You notice the word Lord is all capitalized, right? That tells you that the Hebrew name that is translated by the English title Lord is the word Jehovah. And so the Hebrew word Jehovah is used in this verse. God said to Moses, I am Jehovah. And I appeared unto Abraham and Isaac and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. And that's the name El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. God revealed himself to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the name El Shaddai. That's the name. That was the primary name for God by which he identified himself to the patriarchs. And the word patriarch means the fathers, the fathers of Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the, 
the heads of the tribe of the of the families that eventually or the, the family that eventually became the twelve families of and the twelve tribes of Israel. To those patriarchal leaders, God made himself known to them as El Shaddai. He didn't reveal himself as Jehovah, but rather he revealed himself by the name El Shaddai. Now if you look down through, if you let your eyes scan down through verses six to eight in this text, you will see God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. Closely connected to the name El Shaddai is what God will do for you. When he identified himself as El Shaddai, he immediately gave a list of commitments, a list of, of things that he intended to do, things he had intended to accomplish. Attached to the name El Shaddai is God's commitment to those who know him as El Shaddai and what he'll do for them. Now, go with me back to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is the first place where this name, El Shaddai, was used by God to make himself known to Abraham. Later there in Exodus 6, God said that he had made himself known by this name to each of the patriarchs, the first of which is Abraham. Let me give you just a little bit of background. In Genesis chapter 12... God reveals that when Abram was still living in Ur of the Chaldees, worshiping the moon god, that God had uh, encountered him and told him to leave that culture, that country, that the people of Ur, and to go to a land that he would show him. And God revealed himself as the true and the living God to Abram. And Abram up and left Ur of the Chaldees. That was in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abram at that time he was going to enter a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was a covenant that involved his children. The, the seed that would come from Abraham that would become a mighty nation. So the focus of the Abrahamic covenant involved the children, grandchildren, so forth, that would come forth from Abraham and his wife Sarah. That was in chapter 12. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, after years of waiting for Sarah to bear a child, and Sarah being barren and, and not able to bear a child, Sarah got the idea that we ought to do what our culture back in Ur of the Chaldees did. In the Code of Hammurabi that was used by the people of the, the Far East in the time that Abraham and Sarah lived in Ur of the Chaldees, one of the things they did when a wife was not able to conceive a child is the husband would use the wife's handmaid. And he would have a child by the handmaid, and that child would be as if she was born by the man's wife. That is a provision in the Code of Hammurabi that was a pagan code of rights and wrongs that that culture abided by. And that was Abraham and Sarah's background before God called them unto himself. So when Sarah said, I've got an idea, why don't you have a baby with my handmaid? And we'll just consider it my child. What she was saying is, let's do it the world's way. This is what the world does. This is what the pagan culture does. 
And so she suggested that to Abraham. Abraham went along with it. Uh, Sarah uh, ended up, um, Sarah's handmaid ended up having a baby. And, of course, by the name of Ishmael. And that was in chapter 16. Now, between chapter 16 and chapter 17, 13 years passed in which there's not a word in the biblical record of what happened or of God speaking to Abraham. That's interesting to me. That as soon as Abraham and Sarah decided to live their life the way of the old pagan culture before they had come to God, God stopped speaking. And 13 years passed. And so when we open up chapter 17, Abraham is 99 years old. And Sarah, at the beginning of the chapter, would have been 89 years old. And so after 13 years, God speaks. First time in 13 years, God speaks. And God said in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty God. This is the first of the compound names of God in the Old Testament, whereby God revealed a significant aspect of His character and relationship to us by His choice of a unique name. And that's why in our prayer sheets we have every week, we have a different name for you to learn and meditate on and and pray and praise God for in your prayer times. God said to Abram, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations Have I made thee? And then if you'll let your eyes scan down from verse number 6 down through verse number 8, you will see, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Just like in Exodus chapter 6. The name of El Shaddai in these first two occurrences in the Bible, these occurrences uh, in, in the first occurrence with Abraham and then the occurrence with Moses, The name El Shaddai was attached to God's commitment of what he would do for the people who knew him as El Shaddai. So let me ask two questions about this, about this, uh, this text. Number one, what does El Shaddai mean? What does El Shaddai mean? God said, I am the almighty God. El Shaddai, of course, it's a compound word, as all of these special names for God are that we read in our Bible in the Old Testament. The word El is the first name used. It's used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, El, or Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. It's, it's the name which means strong one. It emphasizes might and strength and power and ability. So when God said, I am El Shaddai, He said, I am the one who's strong. But in what aspect are you strong? El Shaddai. The word Shaddai comes from the Hebrew word Shad, S-H-A-D, which means breast. Speaking of the breast as the place of nourishment, of food, of sustenance, 
of provision. God said, I am strong as your nourisher, your satisfier, your strength giver. I'm strong enough to provide for you. I will do this and I will do this and I will do this and I will do this in your life. Because I'm El Shaddai. I'm the God with unlimited power to provide what you need. I can do what needs to be done. The emphasis is on God's strength in the realm of providing. It's interesting that the Hebrew word for a cultivated field in an agricultural sense, a cultivated field where uh, grain is going to be raised to, sus- to nourish and sustain life. The, the common Hebrew word for a cultivated field is, comes from this same word that, that, that is in El Shaddai. It, it was that, that root word was used of a field that will produce nourishments, nourishment and sustenance to Continue life. It will provide the grain and the food that would be needed. So again, we're reminded that El Shaddai means strength in provision, strength in sustaining, strength in being and doing whatever you need. And therefore, the I wills in both these key passages. God will do this and this and this and this because he's El Shaddai. He's the God who's strong in provision. But, you know. And before God can be seen as the almighty provider, he has to dry up any possibility of human provision. So the very first time this word El Shaddai is used, whereby God said, I am El Shaddai, it's all about Abraham and Sarah having a baby when they're 99 and 89 years of age. And they're going to have the baby the next year when you read, if you read all of chapter uh, 17, the baby's going to be born about 12 months from when God spoke to Abraham. And, and Abraham's going to be 100 years old and Sarah's going to be 90 years old. God dried up any possibility of human ability to have that need, that situation taken care of. Only God can provide this need. Only God can fulfill this promise. Only God is strong enough to do what this commitment by God is all about. Only God is El Shaddai. This word is used 28 times in the Old Testament. And of those 28 times, uh, 48 times, of the 48 times it's used in the Old Testament, 31 of them are in the book of Job. Thirty-one of the forty-eight are in the book of Job. After Job was stripped of everything that was precious in his life. He was stripped of his family. He was stripped of his possessions. He was stripped of his health. He was even stripped of his wife's support for him. And he needed a God who was strong enough to provide what he needed in life. And 31 times God said to Job, I am El Shaddai in your life. El Shaddai, what does it mean? It means God is strong in the ability to provide. The patriarchs needed such a God. And he was a father to them, strong and caring. What a vision of fatherhood. A dad is so valuable for the development and well-being of his children. 
God to the fathers. Laid out for them a role model. By revealing himself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai. What a role model. What our children need. Dads are valuable in the raising of children. Cultures that diminish the value of dads don't know God, don't know the Bible, and they refuse to learn lessons from history. Dads are valuable. And when dads are missing in a culture, chaos ensues. And we have only to look at our inner cities where there is a very low level of fatherhood in the homes that make up many inner cities. And as Barack Obama said when he was a senator, the problem with our inner cities is we don't have dads in the inner cities. Barack Obama, when he was a senator, was a senator spoke of the need to to tell dads, you are needed. Stay with your wife. Stay with your kids. Raise your children. The exact opposite of what some aspects of culture are saying today. I, I wonder if, uh, if some might be embarrassed to read the quotes from Barack Obama when he spoke as a senator about the need of fatherhood in the inner cities of America. But he did. It's a matter of public record. Dads are essential. The Bible shows us a God who made known himself to the patriarchs of Israel. I am the God who is strong enough to provide for you what you need. And in every home there needs to be a dad who is strong enough to provide for his family. The strength, the wisdom, the spirituality, the, the, the song that Jamie sang this morning. That kind of a dad that will be to the family what Jehovah God, what, what El Shaddai was to the patriarchs of Israel. Let me ask a second question. What did El Shaddai focus on? What did El Shaddai focus on? And I see two things that he focused on in Genesis chapter 17. And I want you to note them. They're great pictures of the need of fathers, the need children have of fathers the first thing is that God focused on Abraham's future. In verses 2 through 9, we're not going to read it all, but in verses 2 through 9, it is saturated by God and what God would do with regards to Abraham's children and grandchildren, his progeny that would flow forth from him. God was focused on Abraham's future. Pastor, why do you, why do you uh, note that? Why do you... Why do you address that or call attention to that? Because dads, if they're going to be like El Shaddai, dads are going to focus on their children's futures. They're going to think in terms of what does the future hold for my children and grandchildren. We see constantly in the Old Testament a multi-generational family vision. My children and children's children. Where are my grandkids going to be? Are my grandkids going to worship God? Are my grandkids going to get saved? Are my grandkids going to be in church? Are my grandkids going to be missionaries or preachers or deacons or Sunday school teachers or choir members? Are my grandkids 
And my great-grandkids going to be worshiping God in church every Lord's Day because they love Jesus Christ with all of their heart. That's more important than any lesser concern that a dad should have as he focuses on his role as a father. Jehovah, El Shaddai, focused on Abraham's children and grandchildren. And El Shaddai made commitments of what he would do in Abraham's life to spur on that spiritual generation that would come from him. And so, so El Shaddai focused on Abraham's future. But then there's something else here from verses 10 to verse number 27. El Shaddai focused on Abraham's family's holiness. Specifically, their holiness. In verse number 10, El Shaddai said to Abraham, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thine seed after me. God had said, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And now God says, now here's what you need to do, Abraham. My covenant that you are going to keep. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. This started when Abraham was 99 years of age. His son Ishmael was a teenager. Never before had there been any circumcision. This is where circumcision began. It began in the covenant God reminded Abraham of when God was revealing himself to Abraham as El Shaddai. What is circumcision all about? What in the world is circumcision all about? Well, let me, uh, we'll, we'll, not, we'll not come back to um, Genesis. Let me get you to turn over to Deuteronomy. One last passage and we'll close. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This purpose of this message is not a study on the doctrine of circumcision in the Bible. It's an it's a interesting teaching throughout the Old and New Testament with regards to what it pictures in our relationship with God. But I want you to see it in Deuteronomy 10, what God says. In a statement, circumcision was a very personal yet physical reminder that God, when He saves a person, cuts away the worldly heart of that person so that person might live a holy life unto God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse number, it starts in verse number 12 and goes down through. It talks about what God requires of us, fear God, walk in all His ways, love Him, serve Him. Verse 13, keep His commandments. Uh, for thy good. He's talking about this, this relationship we have in serving God. But look, look at verse number 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And all the way through the end of this chapter, he talks about this thing of circumcision. It was a very personal, very physical picture of cutting worldliness out of the heart of the people who had become known as the people of God.
El Shaddai focused not just on the future of Abraham's family, but he focused on the holiness of Abraham's family. And he was so serious about it that he introduced this bizarre physical act of circumcision to a man who's 99 years of age to be practiced by every male that would be born under his lineage and every person who would come into his household, every male that would come into his household as a servant, that this was to be practiced on them. It was a picture of cutting away the worldliness of an old heart that a person might live holy unto God. El Shaddai put himself in front of the patriarchs of Israel as a mentor, as an example of what it means to be strong in taking care of your family, of being committed to taking care of your family, of saying, I will do this and I will do this and I will do this and I will do this because I am El Shaddai and I am strong in providing everything that my family needs, that my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren might walk in the ways of God, might cut away the worldliness out of their lives and might walk holy before God in the generations to come. This is the great picture of fatherhood, someone who's strong enough to be an example to his kids, committed enough to provide for his kids what they need on a spiritual level, determined enough to make sure his kids and grandkids have what they need to be able to not live a worldly life, but to live a godly life in the generations to come. The heart, it's a heart issue circumcise the foreskin of thy heart. A dad should always be concerned about where's my child's heart? Does my child love God with all of their heart? Does my child, is, is the heart of my child fixated on their love for Jesus as the primary characteristic of their life? Have I been strong enough in providing everything my family needs for their spiritual advancement, for their spiritual development, for their heart for God? That's the picture I see when I study El Shaddai. It reminds me of Ephesians where the Bible says, And ye fathers, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We need God as a father figure in our lives as men, all powerful in providing, and he focuses on our future development, where we're going to go in life with regards to our heart for God in living holy lives. Children need such a God as we need. Children need such a dad as we all need such a God active in our lives with a focus on the heart in love with Jesus Christ.